Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, before we get into this episode with Tessa Lark, it's just an incredible episode. She gave me an hour of her time from 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, before a 7 p.m. concert where she played the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. So uh, it was pretty amazing of her to give me this time. She's got great perspectives. And I have a feeling that there's going to be some new listeners to the podcast uh, because of Tessa. And so if you are one of those new listeners, welcome to the podcast. My name is Ryan. I uh, interview mostly brass players. Uh, I'm a trumpet player myself, uh, but uh, I know that you're going to enjoy this episode with Tessa. Uh, before we get into it, like I said, I just want to take a second to say that you should stick around past the outro of the episode so you can hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And I also want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact that we will be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit and fighting to get the sound that we want. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach & Kahn Selmer, Eastman & Shires, Engelbert Schmidt, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Good evening, whichever one it is where you are listening. And when you are listening, uh, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. My name is Ryan Beach, and I'm very fortunate to be here with Tessa Lark. She's uh, soloing with us. Uh, the Alabama Symphony, it's our first week back since the pandemic started, and we, we stopped working March of 2020. So it's pretty weird <laughs> to be back, honestly. And I have to go to double rehearsals now and it's exhausting and I can't do anything else. And so for me, that's kind of interesting to get back and used to. But one of the things that really affords me is the opportunity to hear great soloists like yourself. And now that I have this podcast, maybe even get to know you a little bit. So um, we don't have a ton of time, so we won't be able to do the sort of meandering exploration that we normally do <laughs> on the podcast. But there are some, some, some things I kind of want to dig into with Tessa while we have the time to be able to kind of get her perspective on things. So first of all, thank you for fitting me in and having me before we got to play with is like, I don't know, an hour and a half before the concert starts. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's delightful. Yeah. And everyone has their own pre-concert routine. So I appreciate <laughs> you doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's just start with your sort of your backstory. Where did you get into music? Did you start with the violin? Did you start with something else and kind of take us through your education and then to your career as it is now? 
Sure. I was born and raised in Kentucky, and my first instrument was actually the mandolin when I was four years old. My dad, um, professionally, he's retired now, was a wildlife biology professor, but plays banjo for fun, has a gospel bluegrass band. So I was hearing a lot of bluegrass in the house, but all kinds of other music too. My my mother and my father come from really um, music forward families, people who love music, no music professionals, but there's a big love for it on both sides of the family. And everybody has pretty good years too, except for my older brother somehow. He didn't <laughs> didn't pan out for him like that, <laughs> but he does okay. He's a mechanical engineer and he's killing it. Um, so yeah, bluegrass was how I got into it. Around six and a half, I started violin lessons formally. I wanted to play piano, but the teacher we found offered violin lessons um, as we searched for an actual piano for me to play on. Um, but then my parents said I declared myself a violinist like half a year after starting. So okay. I fell in love right away. Yeah, it was my toy my whole childhood. And I played... Suzuki uh, for the first five or so years of my training, but my teacher in Kentucky, of course, supplemented that with fiddle tunes too. So it was always side by side for me, sure. classical and, and fiddle music. Um, but I got really serious about violin when I was around um, 11 or 12 years wow. old. and That's when I had just started playing an instrument. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. So that's kind of crazy. It's this is something we don't have to get into, but that kind of fascinates me about the differences between instruments and for instruments like piano and violin. Like starting early is kind of an important part of being able to, you know, I was talking with a violinist in the orchestra. He thinks it's very important to start as early as possible to be able to achieve success because there's just, that's like what people do. For yeah. brass instruments, it's not quite the same, I don't, I don't think. That's interesting. Yeah, my theory with that is that the violin, at least, is such an awkward physical position um, that I feel that your body just kind of grows differently. The tendons in your left arm in particular, um, is this this whole twist of the arm in the left hand is really uncomfortable. Um, I don't know what that is with pianists, though, because that's a very natural position to play on piano. Sure, um, yeah. But yeah, six and a half is actually relatively late, even for a violinist, um, which wow. is when I started. Um, so yeah, you, you hear of people mostly starting age three or four. Um, but I worked my buns off once I started, you know, I was like 12 and I started practicing quite a lot and started studying at Cincinnati Conservatory um, at the Starling program, which had chamber music, uh, music theory classes. I had private lessons, chamber orchestra. There was Eurythmics for a couple of years too. It was a really, really um, solid program. And I learned so much about music and fell in love with a lot of music there too. And to get a chamber music opportunity like that and to be able to perform a lot, there are a lot of concerto opportunities um, that we had as kids playing a movement of a concerto with the school orchestra. Um, it was just phenomenal. And my teacher there, Kurt Sussman's house, um, has a very uh, organized intellect. And it was so brilliant for younger people. He had these great methods for figuring out how to practice and just how to nail stuff and, and learn really quickly. And I'm really grateful to him for just sort of teaching me how to practice and how to organize um, practice time. Mm, we should at a separate time have that conversation because I'm trying, I'm sort of developing a whole presence around trying to Learn how to practice and sharing that with people and doing a very similar thing. So 
Cool. But that's that's tough for another time because I could talk for hours about that. Yeah, I mean, lifelong pursuit. I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, sure. it's it's amazing, and and it all goes into the practice of life, right? And I guess we'll we'll talk about that later too. It's just I see so many through lines between um, how I practice violin and how I approach the rest of life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kurt Sussman's house, I guess, was the start of that, really. Um, and then from there, I went to New England Conservatory. I started um, there a year early because I was just, I was in public school in Kentucky and I was just kind of over it because I was such a music nerd and um, I was ready to nerd out and find like-minded nerds <laughs> like me. Sure. And I met my teacher there, Miriam Freed, at a violin competition. It was the Menuhin competition in London that year, 2001, and she was a jury member and she was one of only two jury members of 12, I think, who actually liked my playing and voted for me. She heard something in it. And so she agreed to see me in the States and I fell in love with her teaching. She opened my eyes to the world of um, true artistry, you know, and and the depth behind music and, and phrasing and what makes a phrase and what to bring out in phrases, what not to bring out in phrases. Um, the importance of knowing historically where the composer is coming from, what he's coming from, or she now. I mean, he was primarily what I was working on at that point. Um, And um, all sorts of things like that. And I really, um, I was just focusing on mostly the technique of of violin up until that point. Um, And I just wanted to know more. So I, I went to study with her. Um, did my bachelor's and master's at NEC and did a few competitions in between. Um, and I don't mean to make that uh, sound casual because I feel like I really wouldn't have um, the type of career that I do had I not done a lot of those competitions. Um, I didn't always win them. And even so, you make so many connections there and people get to know you and you're playing. And so that was really invaluable for me. I don't think it's the only way to make a career for sure. Um, You can have a very healthy career without competitions, but that was my way in. It was a great way to challenge me to see how hard I could work and how much um, I could um, try and thrive in those very stressful situations, um, which has been valuable. And the last, um, the last competition I did was the Indianapolis in 2014. Right before that, I did the Naumburg in 2012. And that was monumental in that I won that competition a month after I had graduated. And that was a month when I was thinking, what in the world yeah. do you do when you're out of school? No one <laughs> tells you. They just like kind of, good luck and call me if you need anything. And sure. So you call in five minutes and you're like, I, uh, I just need to know how does this thing work? <laughs> you know, so after the Naumburg, that was such a godsend because I actually had concerts and I had some um, inspiration and motivation. And I thought maybe I can do this. And then I did Indianapolis in 2014, got the silver medal. Again, I think I was applying for these things because I just wanted some encouragement and some deadline to work towards because deadlines are really important for me. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us found out about that during the pandemic, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's been um, a pursuit of all sorts of things ever since then. Um, I uh, got some management 
at the start of 2016, and I actually just left that management two months ago and am now self-managed. Um, so that was an amazing five-year journey of, you know, of learning about that side of the business, um, learning about making connections and keeping connections and maintaining a standard of performance and maintaining sanity, et cetera. Um, these are all just general things. I guess it's not super tangible stuff about mm -hmm. building a career, but it just, it, it kind of, I'm a, I, I feel like I'm a real slow burn in that I meet a lot of people and just kind of stay in touch and um, try and keep do that, doing that and try and just really um, approach my career in a sincere way and make sure that I really love the people that I'm playing with and I really love the music I'm playing and how I'm playing it. Yeah, that's really inspiring and encouraging for me because I feel very similarly when you, for me, when I want a job, I thought everything was just going to happen. I just thought I'd start getting master classes and I'd go play here and do that. And, and like none of that happened, you know, and I realized now, through especially through the podcast, it's been really sort of, it's been really interesting to see. But especially through the podcast, some of these connections I've made have led towards opportunities. And mm -hmm. it's a very similar thing. It's inspiring to hear that that's what you value too. Because um, it's not only do I have some of these opportunities, but it's with people who value what I do. And it's not just like some yeah. random like, oh, you want a job, whatever. It's like they know what I'm about and they mm -hmm. value what I'm about and what I'm trying to share. So that's really encouraging for me. I appreciate it. Um, there's one thing I want to stick on before we move on. You said these competitions really helped you to see how hard you could work, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so when I do you know who David Goggins is? No, David Goggins is a Navy SEAL. Uh, he wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. He's sort of a public figure that is really, he's just intense. He's a Navy SEAL. And he, and he he's just willing to work harder than anybody, right? He's one of mm -hmm. those types. And I, I remember asking after reading his book and being inspired, what is the David Goggins of music? Because I don't perceive that we have, it means the same thing for musicians as it means for like athletics, like to work hard. You could just like do another set or you could just do this or you could do that. And I've started thinking, well, if it's not the same, what does it look like to work as hard as you can in music, because that I don't think it inherently means more time in the practice room, right? Yeah. And so I'm curious, like for you, what were some things that you learned to learn from this process that sort of was how you began to think this is what it means for me to work hard? And it could be hours in the practice room, but if there's other things that might be involved with that, I'd be curious what that means for you. Yeah, it's a great question. And honestly, it keeps on um, growing as I hopefully <laughs> grow. Um, and for me recently, um, hard work is involving more um, balance for me because when I was younger and doing competitions, I did think that hard work just meant tons of hours in the practice room and always playing your violin and always thinking violin and this and that. And of course, ultimately that just leads to crazy burnout, which will happen anyway if anyone's working hard. Um, but uh, it was an unhealthy um, balance and approach for me when I was younger. And this thing that I always say now is if um, if I don't find the balance myself, the, the balance will find me in that, you know, if I really overwork myself and practice too hard, I'm going to get 
injured or I'm just going to start hating the violin or what I'm doing and then yeah. totally burn out and then just need to take a break and disappear. And that is its own sort of balance, but it's just too extreme to sustain. So back with competitions, um, you know, I, I'm so interested in so many things and in people and I tend to just, uh, flit around and do a bunch of different stuff. And so to to do competitions and have set repertoire and something to work towards and knowing that other people were working really hard too, um, I think one element of hard work that I learned about through competitions is consistency. That it's not putting, you know, eight hours of practice in a day every now and then and then taking a few days off and then doing it again. It's just doing it consistently every single day. So it's just part of you and your muscle memory and something you do every day is just going to become habitual. So there is that. Um, and then consistency of mindset. I've really been looking more into what's going on with me psychologically. And I feel like especially these days, once you're at a certain age and experience level, most of the hard work is actually internal and mental. Um, and so to always be um, mentally healthy and stable, getting enough rest, that actually is work, hard work um, in my mind now. Because I thought, oh, hard work is I need to be able to practice if into the wee hours, you know, 3 a.m. if I didn't feel I got enough work done and then I'll wake up at six and continue doing the same thing. For me, no, now hard work is I do the work in an efficient and smart way so that I can get my seven or eight hours of sleep every night and show up as my best, you know, everywhere I go. So it, it just keep it keeps changing for me. Um, but I think hard work always involves a pursuit of improvement and growth and and never settling. And I think that is something that competitions always bring. What was the guy, I can't remember his name, but you studied with him and you said that he really taught you a lot about how to practice. Yes, Kurt name? Sussman's house. Okay, so how old were you when you studied with him? I was 11 and yeah, five years, 11 to 16 years old. So what's interesting to me about this discussion is, and, and this may be just like an overgeneralization, but what's interesting to me about this discussion is we framed, like that was framed as he taught me how to practice, but then we're talking about this next level of like later, uh -huh. I learned like maybe I shouldn't practice until 3 a.m. Maybe I should be, <laughs> yeah. maybe I should actually be efficient with my work. And so that's a fascinating thing to me is that we would we would acknowledge that like we learned about like how to practice and things like that, but then we learned like another sort of level. And that's kind of what I feel like I'm dealing. I learned how to mm -hmm. practice before, but I feel like I'm finding another level of efficiency. But what I, f I find with efficiency is that it carries with it like like what you're saying almost it's a beautiful way to say it that just it being done consistently just becomes the way that you do it. Mm -hmm. So instead of it's like I got to figure out how to get good, it's like I just need to play well as consistently as I can and that's the way that I'll do it. So I don't know, like that's there's no real question there. It's just sort of an observation that we can we sort of acknowledge that there's almost like this next level and it only really happens when we're really in the middle of trying as hard as we can. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. 
For sure. No, and and to go back to the, you know, Navy SEAL kind of analogy, it's like um, there are a lot of exercises you can sort of half-ass for an hour and it's like, good, I put in my hour, but you're not really like that guy, Navy SEAL, if he works out for an hour, he is definitely yeah. burning a thousand times more calories than the average person because he is working hard in that hour. And so his hour equals five hours of somebody else's workout because of how focused and how invested he is in every one of those moves. And so I, I feel like it's just the wrong way to approach it thinking, oh, I got to do my five hours every day. I've got to do my one hour of scale. I've got to do my one hour of solo Bach or whatever. And it's it's not... The time you can get so much done if you just focus on getting it right. And I, I just caught myself um, only a couple years ago thinking so often during my practice, like, oh, that wasn't any good. I better fix that later. Or sitting with something and thinking, oh, this is no good. I want it better. I want it better. Instead of just, uh, and, and again, this people might roll their eyes. It's kind of lame, but just like positive mindset, just thinking if, if something is not up to par, um, immediately figuring out what to do to make it better and utilizing what you already know, you probably already know, um, to fix it right then and there. And actually, Kurt Sussman's house, I remember him in one lesson asked me, he said, how long does it take to change a habit? And you know, I was already into psychology and stuff and I had read some stuff and it's like, oh, I read that it took takes two, two weeks to change. And he said, no, it takes no time to change a habit. Just decide on it and do it and yeah, keep doing yeah. it. And then you're good. And that's such a great point because of course there's, it takes a while to create a subconscious habit, but to make a habit, um, you just have to 100% believe that that's how you're going to do it from now on. And it'll take some more conscious effort um, at first, but if it's consistent and efficient, then eventually you won't have to bother, you know, spending time yeah. and energy thinking about it anymore. Gosh, I wish we, I wish we had so much more time to talk about this <laughs> than we do. Um, but because we don't, we're just going to put a pin in that. And someday down the road, maybe we'll have more time to talk about that. I want to talk to you about the Tchaikovsky because the tr trumpets, we just don't have anything of this magnitude in our, mm -hmm. in our repertoire, you know? So the idea of tackling such a huge piece, you know, and I don't know if you view it that way, but to me, just the, like I said, the magnitude of it, it just seems like it's such a important and um, I guess big work. And there's yeah. so many different themes and so much, even throughout the themes, there's so many different styles and colors and characters that mm -hmm. you're trying to bring out and doing it. And so I'm curious, I'm going to leave this as an open-ended question and just see where you go and maybe we can kind of dig in. But do you have like a specific approach to breaking a piece down musically that you'll say, this is something I maybe have never worked on or haven't seen or it's been a while. This is where I start when trying to make musical decisions. This, These are the ways I find inspiration. If I don't know exactly what I want to do, like, do you have a process for this? And I, I hope it's not just, oh, I just like play what I hear in my head, right? Like, I hope that there's something <laughs> because I'm in my own playing. I feel like I lack this a little bit, like a process of understanding how to musically dig down deep and get everything that I, I can in this moment out of it. So that's my question to you, just very open-ended and see where you go. Nice. Yeah, well, I, um, I'm i trying to avoid having any 
one way of learning music because I'm sure every composer approaches, you know, their compositions differently. And so I, I try my best to avoid sounding, you know, exactly the same and just like literally treating it like um, business as usual. But then again, when life gets really busy and there was a point a few years ago when I was playing like 14 concertos in the season and a lot of them were brand new to me, um, I did have to kind of come up with a system to learn things. And thanks, Suzuki, I learn a lot by ear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I usually will get a score, like seriously, it's not, I'm not just like saying that, but getting a score is important for me um, because it gets me out of my head. I'm like, I'm afraid of technical stuff. And so the more I can get away from that mindset and think about what's the orchestra doing here instead of like, what are my fingers have to be doing here? That helps me. And if I can implement that sort of thinking right away, that's going to help my life with the music. I find that the impetus, like the, the emotion behind my initial approach towards a piece kind of remains with that piece for the rest of my life. So I try to really have some positive atmosphere to my learning a piece, which often means no last minute freakouts, you know, not learning the last minute. Unfortunately, I can learn very fast. So I've um, taken advantage of that a little too much. But then I'll go back to those pieces and I'll have that tinge of stress every time just because I learned it last minute, you know, early on. And so I associate it with that. So anyway, I try and create a an appropriate and inspiring association with a piece. I listen to it a lot all sorts of different recordings just to get the gist of it. Um, I have been doing a lot of commissions recently, which is fun because you really just have to look at the score and your yeah, inspiration is a MIDI yours, file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I say, it's like your interpretation at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, once like the whole is in my mind, then I will go in and sort of read it through and figure out, okay, these are the passages that, um, just totally sounded awful. I'm going to need to spend a little more time with those. And then um, I sort of figure out what my process is going to be from there. And I try and start with the hardest stuff first. So it feels most familiar over time. Um, and But with the Tchaikovsky, I learned that when I was 15. It was actually the first piece um, I played for Miriam Fried when I started studying with her. And so that piece is in my body in a couple of different ways weird way. It was like a musical puberty moment of mine where I was sort of into um, technical precision, but also just starting to learn about musicality and what it means to um, emotionally, to, to understand what you're doing emotionally. Because at first it was just my instincts, you know, and my teachers were really... Um, encouraging of me following my musical instincts. Um, but then with Miriam Freed, she was really um, encouraging in me trying to figure out how to verbalize what my instincts are and trying to figure out if the instincts actually match the meaning behind the piece. Sure, yeah. So that's what Tchaikovsky, um, that's the first impetus, you know, that I feel with Tchaikovsky. So whenever I play that piece, um, now in my adult life, there's always this battle of, I, I'm trying my best to sort of 
prevent from prevent myself from sounding just like a technical machine, even though I'm grateful that a lot of those runs are just in my bones because I, I drilled them a lot when I was little. So so it's nice to like have that in my bones. But um it's it's a huge piece and I try my best to see more forest than trees with it because it gets a little too daunting if you're just piece by piece like measure by measure oh this um huge mountain that I have to climb and then this huge mountain but just just thinking of a storyline and in thinking in um bigger structures and that helps me a lot with stamina and then otherwise um I just think about a composer and their um all their works in general. And with Tchaikovsky, of course, we think about ballet and um, as bombastic as we feel, uh, as I feel a lot of people, you know, think of this concerto, I, it's, it's such an elegant piece and it actually starts so um, lightly and sweetly. Right. And, and you just think of Tchaikovsky like epic, you know, but it's, there's actually, there's so many soft feminine moments in the music. Um, so I, I also try and lean into those um, differentiations in in feeling and that just it it gives it gives me stuff to you know entertain myself with and, and to keep my mind off of um, any of the the things that I might <laughs> freak out over <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> yeah, there's a thread that you you touched on. I think it's so 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 important, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do my best to like sort of bring it out, right? So you've been working on this piece for a very long time, right? Mm-hmm. It's I mean, it's not like it's not this. It's not like this is it's, it's not like you learned it for this concert or this right. this cycle or this tour or whatever, right? So what's interesting to me is like we would then have to acknowledge like the process that has happened in your life to get you to the point where right now you can play it and there's a level of ease and you can bring this musicality to it and you're, there's an emotional content that may not have been there previously. But mm-hmm. like, I'm really, I think it's really important to acknowledge that like what you did before is okay. Like, mm. you know what I mean? I don't feel, I feel like sometimes we can get into this headspace that if you're not able to produce sound the way that you are right now, it's like useless, right? right? As opposed to you are just in that part of the process of development. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so the, the equivalent, like I spent a lot of time in the gym, right? And the equivalent of that would be, well, I would like to deadlift 700 pounds, but right now I can only deadlift 500 pounds. So it's like everything is horrible until I get to that point, right? <laughs> As opposed to I'm in the middle of this process and like this is where I am and it's okay. It's like fine if right now I'm just trying to get the technique of this thing down because that's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, does this make sense what I'm saying? Like, I Absolutely. think we, I think sometimes, I don't want to say we get too wrapped up in the music, but I think sometimes we can say, well, if there's not a musical thing happening, or it's not like, if, if I'm hearing something that's not moving me emotionally, then it's like, we got to fix this problem, as opposed to like, mm-hmm. you're doing great. Like, you're yeah. tackling this thing that's like insanely difficult, and you're 15 or you're 21 or you're 30 or whatever, right? Yeah. And that's okay to be in that part of the process. Yeah. And then to say, I'm doing great work now. How would I continue to add more and grow? Which is speaking to what you have spoken, you know, you've talked about that. It's just this constant process. Do you have any thoughts on what I just sort of ran, like, blurted out just now? <laughs> <laughs> I I love that so much, and it actually um, 
it reminds me of a conversation I was having with Carlos Iscaray yesterday, and we were just talking about how our tastes in music just change all the time and how, you know, there, there are even their pieces or even artists that, um, you know, he and I have heard when we were younger and we just didn't like it or weren't, weren't into it, didn't get it, whatever. And then you live some life and then you revisit that piece or that artist and their performance. And then suddenly it's just the most miraculous, inspiring thing. And, and something happens in that time and, it it just will for everyone where where your tastes change, your understanding changes. Um, I think back all the time to different things that teachers have said to me over the years, and things that just I thought I understood and I thought I got it um, in a lesson. But you know, flash forward ten or eleven years, like I I really get it, yeah, and yeah. and I understand. And you know, for instance, Miriam Freed um, always harping on my bow arm, um, and I, to this day, still am, but I remember her saying at one point she threw her hands in the air and she said, you know what, you're just not going to fix this until you actually see that, like, you need to do this, you know, to sound the way you want to. And she's just like, I'm giving up now until that happens. And I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, and I like got so, you know, I, uh, all defenses went up and I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, of course I want to change it, but... Like over the pandemic, I had all this time to practice and I was thinking more, living more. And these sounds, like these interpretations um, that were coming to my head, like I couldn't achieve them. And I realized that it's because my bow arm was stiff and I needed some more relaxation there. And I just thought back to, you know, a lesson from 10 years ago. And it's like, oh my gosh, thank you, Miriam Freed. That's what she means. Yeah. Like my, my, Ear, my inner ear has grown, and now I'm at this point where I really just need mm. to fix this technique. And um, also, I I just feel like I I love to blame the internet for a lot of things. Um, I I think you know Amazon is another one that I like to blame. It just things come to us. We can get things so immediately um, that I feel like, and, and cancel culture is in this too. It's just like something is great or it's not, it's black or it's white, it's good or it's bad. And there's just nuances missing so much in our lives right now. And I feel like this, that somehow relates to what you're saying where you need to accept people in the phase of life they're in. And that involves music making too. Yeah. And everybody is given their own bag of gifts. And some people like for me, I had a musical intuition. I was not, I, I you know, I'm physically a little clumsy. And so technique, you know, I, it looks weird when I play the violin. It's taken me a long time to figure that out. Whereas somebody else might just be a technical whiz and it's going to take them a while to figure out how to spin a phrase, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah. you got to just respect and applaud what artists are given and that they are ready to go in every day and sacrifice a lot of their life for this pursuit. And it'll just be changing all the time. Yeah, I think that's such a cool perspective and one that I think honestly we need more people talking about because instruments it's it's not only hard it just takes a long time like there's nobody it's for yeah. no one does it happen quickly. Right. Right? Yeah. And so we hear people who are excelling as musicians and then there's just I hear you know these stories about like there's a student who's like doing really well or whatever and then 
like they don't necessarily play something super musically and then it's like somehow the feedback is like well this isn't good there's not much musical value here and it's mm-hmm. like well what about all of the good you know yeah like, like to me i actually think there's a lot of i mean we don't have time for this but there's a lot <laughs> of value in actually establishing a baseline level of technique where you can consistently produce a sound that mm-hmm. you want to sound and then asking yourself musical questions because you have this base of like consistency with which to ask those questions mm-hmm. as opposed to i don't have consistency i can't make the same sound and so like even if i wanted to try to ask musical questions i don't don't know if like the reason I can't do it is because I don't hear it or if I can't I can't just make the same sound two times in a row. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like it, yeah. So I think there's some argument there for like the, it's okay to focus on the technique for a period of time, but we have to then expand our concept that like let's say that we're not going to we're not I mean this is extreme, right? But let's say we're not going to judge the efficacy of the work we've done for 20 years minimum. Right, mm-hmm. and twenty years we can say, well, did I waste my time in those fir- in those first four years thinking just about technique, and then the next sixteen years growing as a musician? Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, but we yeah. don't think that way. Yeah, totally. At all. And I think the educa- I don't think it's a problem, but I think education can sometimes make us feel this way because we have like four years to figure it out or six years to figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like we don't see it as like I'll just continue growing past that point. And yeah. so like where am I now and how can I add a little bit of value? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Okay. I have one more question. <laughs> well, I have a lot more questions. But I have one that I think will be a cool way to end this. Although what you just said, I'm it's like I should have just stopped talking because what you said was a good place to end it. But <laughs> No, we're still going. Here we go. <laughs> Do you think that you like I feel this way, and I'm just curious for your perspective, but you know, the way you feel now about things like balance and the way you practice with efficiency and the way that you try to bring an emotional connection to it that maybe you weren't able to bring when you were younger. Like, do you wish that you would have known back then what you know now? Do you think you would have benefited from it? Or do you feel like you needed to go through the things you went through and to struggle in the way that you struggled so that it's more meaningful now? Like, what's your perspective on that? Do you wish you could have changed the past or are you happy with the way that you, it happened for you? Wow. Um, yeah, I don't I don't want to give one of those blanket answers where, you know, like, oh, I, I don't regret a single thing and this and that, um, you know, I mean, it would be cool to, to have been where I am now earlier on. Cause that just means I would be further now <laughs> than I am. Of course. Yeah. Um, that's cool. But, but also, um, I, you know, back, back then I would have definitely said, you know, I'm, I'm ready for more. I want more, more, more. Like this is taking too long in terms of just me discovering, like, answering any questions I had about music making or about career or this or that. But as things continue to develop, I am so grateful for the time that I've had to grow and expand as a person. Um, For example, I um, like the people that I've met. Um, My fiance, Michael Thurber, um, he kind of grew up... um, after his college years, he he just sort of regularly was seeing a therapist just to have somebody he could literally pay to talk about himself with. You know, it, it was just um, just like going to physical therapy or going to the gym. It was his you know mental exercise of staying uh, sane and sound. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing that in 2017, and 
Um, at first I was thinking, this is such BS. All this person is doing is asking me, and how does that make you feel? You know, and, and I thought it was a waste, <laughs> but flash forward to now. And I, I feel like I understand myself way better than I ever had in the past. And it's, it's just making life so much better. It's making, I, I'm enjoying playing the violin so much more. I'm enjoying my life around it so much more. Years ago, I, I never would have agreed to doing this podcast right mm. before a concert. I would have agreed to do nothing and I would have just been freaking out in the hotel room all day long, like super unhealthy things and practicing too much and probably as a result, not playing as well in the in the concert. And through this whole pursuit and through the mistakes that I've made, I've, you know, I've... Um, crossed over that line and crossed over that boundary. And I've sort of found my own little lane in, in box. I mean, I don't want to talk like I have boundaries, but honestly, like my even saying that means that I needed to find boundaries for myself yeah, yeah. in my life to stay healthier. So it's a super long-winded way of, of saying that I am actually grateful that things have, you know, taken the time that they have because I, I feel like I'm a much more well-balanced person and and ready for some some more challenges um, that I might not have been ready for, you know, back then. Yeah, it's a great perspective. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for your time. It's 6 o'clock, 6.01 actually. So Woo, right we'll call it right here. Um, I just want to give you a chance to uh, for my listeners to be able to find you if they want to know more about you and where they can get in contact with you if they wanted to say, hey, I enjoyed the episode or just find out about what you're doing with your career. Sure. Yeah, I have a website, tessalark.com. And on the contact page, um, you can write to me directly there. I have Instagram um, at tessalark. Facebook is Tessa.Lark, I think. <laughs> just a bunch of Tessa Lark all yeah. over the darn place. So just find me that way, yeah, on YouTube and all that stuff. And I love, I love hearing from y'all. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on Facebook, or I guess that's not spit.com and on Facebook at that's not spit. You can, I really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes. If you enjoyed the episode, if you had any feelings at all, and don't forget to share this episode on social media so other people can find it. Share. Tessa, thank you so much for your time. It was, it was a pleasure to, to get to chat with you a little Likewise. bit. And I appreciate you making time for me. Thank you so much. Super fun. Yeah. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is just to say that we're all kind of getting back into the swing of things, and I think a lot of us are going to need some healing after all of this time spent alone. And remember that healing takes time, and it's best done with good company a good glass of wine, and maybe some twinkle lights. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs>